go, yes, we roll. Let's say it's 360 degrees. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine program produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. On tonight's show, we'll look at the detrimental effects of anxiety, fear, and anger occurring when any group focuses on differences between themselves and others, even if those differences are imagined or artificially created. And we'll look back over millennia to help us understand this issue in our current day. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay with us. On this weekend's anniversary of the inauguration of the 45th president, a discussion of antagonism towards groups and individuals any society identifies as the other is in our best interest. Tonight, I'll be speaking with Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives on the development and spread of systems of oppression and persecution between groups as well as among members of a seemingly unified group. I'm here tonight with my guest, Max Dashu, and we are going to be talking about persecutory culture, a term that's fairly new to me, but one I'm wanting to share with our audience. Max, you've heard on Full Circle before. She was with us for the end of October, Halloween, and we had a very successful show on the cultural significance of that particular time, the Day of the Dead, the passing of the souls, religious and cultural as well. Max, when I heard you use that term a few months ago, persecutorial culture, my ears just perked right up. I wasn't sure what you meant by it, but it was a phrase that just seemed like it was a bowl in which a lot of information was going to be held in a really coherent way, and I was eager to listen to more of what you had to say on the topic. And I particularly thought that right this minute, as we are having the anniversary of the inauguration of the 45th president, that this would be a perfect time to talk about persecution in our culture. So instead of me guessing uh, (laughs) about the meaning of the term persecutorial culture, I'm just going to let you open this up for us and explain what we're going to be talking about tonight. The phrase came to me the day after the election and waking up and finding that we have Voldemort as president. And it was like so crushing. It was so horrifying. And I immediately began thinking, I really need to do a visual talk on this. That's what I do is teaching with images. And so I need to do, I need to pull together information for people about historical patterns around the cultures of persecution. 
because it's not something that is natural to humans. You know, it has to be taught, these types of behaviors, these systemic patterns. You know, it's part of oppression. It's it's part of that pattern of domination in human societies. And so it can take different forms. But what I had in mind immediately was thinking about, well, of course, the witch burnings, which we talked about, you know, around Halloween and, and persecution, especially of women as witches. And burning at the stake is certainly persecution. Uh, there are smaller levels of that. But also, uh, just staying with me- medieval Europe for a minute, the pogroms against the Jews, the attacks that are on an ideological basis. You have the forced wearing of badges, not just under the Nazis, but really the, it originates in the early medieval period. And a special hat, special clothing, various other things that basically mark someone out and says, here is a target. The state, the church will not protect this person. So if they're attacked, they're automatically by definition wrong. And it's a good and right thing that they should be persecuted. But there are other examples that are more recent, and they're still part of this pattern. I mean, I think that European civilization had a lot of this embedded in it before the colonial era. But then you have the invasions of North America, South America, and you have the importation of the Inquisition, of witch burning, you know, this, not just Salem, but many other persecutions. And you have the persecution of, of native religion, not just religion, but really the spiritual culture of entire societies here in North America and really through the whole world, wherever it was colonized. The ideology underlying those persecutions is born in the Inquisition and the witch hunts in Europe. The idea that some people are devil worshippers. There are people whose religion is good and right, and there are people who must be punished and must be disciplined because they believe things that are considered bad by the dominant society. This devil worship meme became the basis for, well, you did have people burned at the stake in the Caribbean, You had actually others like African Americans who were accused of raising a a revolt against slavery in New York in the 1740s. The alleged leader, we don't really even know if this is true. It could have just been a purely persecutory thing in itself. Uh, He was burned at the stake in New York City in the 1740s. You have, of course, the lynchings that are so much a part of the post-slavery era a way of re-encoding slavery under new new forms, you know, with Jim Crow and all the rest of that. And so uh, that was really, it's terrorism, but it's often state-sponsored terrorism. This is what I want to see is how we can relate all these different kinds of persecution, the confiscation of sacred objects, masks and medicine bundles and, and other things like that from the First Nations peoples, uh, the destruction of them, bonfires of them, in order to stamp out a culture. So in, in some ways, when we're talking about persecutory culture, you can see that there's an overlap with oppression and genocide overall. You know, but I'm really trying to target specifically the means of persecution, the ideologies that are brought into play, like devil worship, like the mythology of the black rapist that has been so crucial in the United States racialized caste system, enforcing that, and see how those mythologies and those symbols and and those stories are activated in violent ways. 
you know, so that you have the destruction of Black Tulsa, or you have, you know, these these mob violence incidents, which are very much like the pogroms that were carried out or the witch hunts in Europe. And they are, in my opinion, really the descendant of those patterns of persecution. It's also important to say that this type of behavior is not universal. I mean, humans are always capable of being violent, violent on an individual level, but a systemic violence requires an ideology, and it requires a, a power structure of domination where those who are benefiting, who are at the top, have the power to get everyone going uh, in ways that, that, you know, for their, their own profit, their own dominance. This is, this is what, you know, I thought about the names persecutory culture or cultures of persecution. Because, you know, this is not only unique to Europe. You find in the ninth um, century in Iraq, you know, under some of the, the Abbasid caliphs, you have persecutions of the Zindik, the heretics, and the same kinds of horrific executions. Another example we could name is that gays or gender nonconforming people, um, you know, the, the categories and the names have changed now, those groups were horrifically tortured and executed in medieval Europe, not formally as part of the witch hunts, but as part of a larger pattern of this persecution. And so you have story pointing to evildoer, person who is bad, person who is naturally going to be the target. And then you have violence against that group because it's never an individual only. It's always as the member of a targeted group, whether that's women, gays, trans, racialized ethnicities, social classes. There's a lot of ways this works out. Uh, In the case of women, besides the witch hunts, you have other patterns of persecutory culture that enforce the sexual double standard. So the idea that women have to be virgin, they have to be chaste, they have to be faithful to their husband, and their husband can do whatever he wants. He can have affairs, he can go to brothels. That's his privilege as a male. There are two different ways that women suffer from this in terms of persecutory culture. One is you have things like stoning of of women who are fornicators, women who are adulterers. This is already going back to not just the Bible, but you see it also in some of the Mesopotamian societies. So you have a terrifying punishment, a public demonstration See what happens? Women, watch this and see because this could happen to you. It's, it's a form of intimidation and really terror that is, is enacted through these executions, stonings, drownings, burial alive in China. This was a, a, a chastity violation punishment. So that's on the one side, the women who are considered to be, you know, they have, they've breached the bounds of male authority, of belonging to a man. And then on the other side, you have women who also breach that, but in a different way. And these are the women who wind up in the sex trade. And they too are attacked and publicly humiliated. And there are examples that we see described in Tacitus, for example. He's talking about Germania and how there was a very harsh code of chastity for the wives. And then the prostitutes would be gathered up by a mob periodically and stripped and paraded through the village being beaten. Now, this would be done by the same men 
who are patronizing them in the sex trade. And so there is an ideological performance of male domination in these instances that has to be enacted through public events to keep all the women in line. And the witch hunts fall into that as well. I mean, they're part of that pattern. So what I'm noticing is it isn't just issues of one group against the other. It's parts of the group within the group. Maybe that's a little convoluted way to say it. But this hierarchy of domination and violence is as likely to be used within a group as who is identified as the other. Right. It's all about being uh, defined as the other, and people within the group can be defined as the other, and women are probably the most predominant example of that, or, you know, GLBT people. And then there are also groups which are declared to be utterly other, irredeemably other, can never be integrated. You know, and this has to do, for example, the conflict, the church's idea that the Jews, as the senior religion, the parent religion, if you will, they were terrified of the authority of the Jews over their own holy books. And so they were constantly coming up with means of persecution to define them as the bad people, the people who followed evil ways and who needed to be punished. And this really undergirded a lot of the violence. So so I'll give an example further about that because with the you had persecution of Jews in the late Roman Empire when Christianity became the authoritarian doctrine the 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 legal state religion all others are outlawed the Jews were allowed to exist but there were always these modes of pushing them to the side and this is something you can track in the Christian scriptures when the crusades came along there were preachers there were monks preaching the crusades which were basically invasions of Western Asia and Northern Africa. They were saying, well, we're going to fight the unbelievers, but we have unbelievers right here in our midst, and they point to the Jews. So the first crusades, long before they ever set foot in Palestine, were attacking Jewish communities, mass slaughters in cities as they marched from the northern French cities across Germany on their way to Asia. So you have these pogroms. And out of that violence, in turn, grew a mythology that is called the blood libel. It claims that the ceremonies that the Jews do, particularly at Passover, were actually sacrifices of Gentile boys. Hence the blood libel, this idea that they are murdering people as part of their religion. This is to scare everyone into thinking, these people are really evil. We can't trust them for anything. They murder children. Same accusation in a different form, also levied against witches. You can see that pattern there deployed against different groups. Anyhow, that blood libel accusation is still around. It was active in the 17, 18, 1900s. There was a czarist secret police document invented called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which made claims like this about the inherent evil of the Jews and their practices. That is still being sold as a bestseller in Syria and Egypt and different countries. So the appeal of something to justify hatred and violence and subordination and legal exclusion is something, you know, it's very potent as a political tool. 
We're going to pause on that note and take a music break. Let's focus on resistance. Here is Mercedes Sosa with her song about the Bolivian guerrilla leader, the captain, Juana Azurdue. beloved singer Mercedes Sosa, the shining light of the Nueva Cancion movement, with her t- song titled Way, the Amazon of Liberty. 
You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano, and you are listening to tonight's guest, Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives. We continue our conversation. I wanted to go back to your example of othering within your own overall culture, your own group, and making the others where maybe even that category hadn't existed before. But now there are different kinds of believers uh, within our culture that some of these um, names for who those people in those groups are didn't even exist even 10, 12 years ago. It just reminds me of this confusion, this throwing up of the hands saying, how did we get here? Or how did, how come this is escalating? It seems to, to be on the rise. We're, you know, seeing it at this particular crescendo with our current leadership. Uh, there. Leadership, not ours. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes, the people who were su- the successful voters that time around. How quickly an other can be created. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And yet the, the quickness of the creation still falls back on these older patterns. And so we saw how George Bush II invoked the Crusades in attempting to drum up war against Iraq. He's delving back into that old background of hatred in Christendom towards Muslims. You know, and this is something that really, when you look at the election of of last year, was really activated very effectively, I have to say it, you know, horrifically, by, by Trump candidacy. Because hatred of black people, of Muslims, of immigrants, so therefore brown people, primarily, of women, of really activating misogyny, as a strategy, far from the pussy grabber comments working against them, they it actually worked for him because there were people who rejoiced in the open expression of bigotry toward any of those groups. And they said, I'm okay, we're on for this. That was really, uh, it worked for him, which is a terrible commentary on this society. But it's also a really important piece of information for us about the way that these old scripts, they may go underground, they don't go away. And in times of crisis, as Naomi Klein has laid out for us, then they they can be resurrected. When people are in crisis, they want quick answers, they want easy answers. You have this desire to lash out. I really think that that election was about anger more than anything else. But the targets, and this is crucial when when we're analyzing persecutory culture, the targets are not the cause of people's suffering that they're angry about. So, you know, the vaunted white working class voters that went for Trump, including, unfortunately, half the women, like the peasants in medieval Europe, they aren't going to turn against the feudal lords or the corporate lords. They're going to turn around and point in the Middle Ages, it was the Jews. The Jews are are the ones that are harming us. And now it's the immigrants, it's the gays, it's the blacks, you know, it's the feminazis, whatever group. All of those are in play right now. They they really, almost as if they desire more to vent their wrath than to actually see a solution to their problems. Because they're going for a mythology of domination. 
It's like, oh, we need Big Brother. We need a fearless leader who is going to fix everything magically. And Big Brother was only ha- so happy to pose in that role. And the incompetence of it is coming clear to some of them, at least. We saw that also in the campaign rallies. I mean, first of all, rallies, the rally nature of the Trump candidacy was very, very persecutory, very, very violently insightful to actually beat people up, openly saying, beat them up, throw them out, get them out of here, inciting and calling for violence and saying he would legally defend people who committed violence. And there's all that video that we all saw of people being attacked from the sidelines. And this is the other part we have to look at because clearly the ruling elites have their own motivations to profit from this, to benefit from it, to pull the wool over people's eyes. But on the other hand, we have to really look at and understand what's going on with those people who will actually be susceptible to being manipulated in that way. The same violent attackers you know, of a lone black person at a Trump rally or whatever whatever it may be, are also going to be harmed by the policies of the person that they're pledging feudal allegiance to. I'm reminding listeners that you're tuned in to KPFA 94.1 FM, and this is the First Voice Apprenticeship Program's weekly show, Full Circle. We'll continue with Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives after this music break. Enjoy Angelique Kidjo. <laughs>
That was Jin Jin by Benin Angelique Jolie. Uh, I am so sorry, by Angelique Kidjo. Now let's continue with Max Dashu. I'm going to put you on the spot here for just a second, Max. Just give a little summation, if you can, about the divide in our country right now and how you see uh, persecutory culture playing out right now. And especially why it is that we're not able to recognize all of uh, what you're calling the memes that that rise up so easily. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's playing out in so many different ways. I mean, one that's very obvious is the people screaming at each other, battles that take place on social media. And as far as what we do about that, I think that we're going to have to use one of the one of the roots, at least, is to use the arts to communicate to people so they can feel it rather than just trying to it's like these ideological arguments. Sometimes, you know, people just switch off. You know, that's one thing. Uh, the level of online abuse is really a classic example of, of persecutory culture. You see women getting beaten up online all the time and the death threats, the rape threats, no platforming, all of these things going on. Uh, lots of misogyny in the way this is acted out. But it's also, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting with social media because Facebook has banned pe- women for posting something, say, about patriarchy or about, you know, their experience in the world. Uh, They do the same thing to African Americans for talking about racism. And yet, really egregious examples of hate speech and pornography, if white men are the ones who are putting that out, those are given a pass. And Facebook writes and says, well, we, you reported this post, but we don't, we find that it doesn't meet our standards of, you know, something that has to be removed. So we have a combination of the behavior with a power structure. I mean, ultimately, they're the arbiters. And so you've got the white male techies who are calling the shots about what gets to be on that media. The patrols along the border of vigilantes, the white militia type guys, that's, that's an expression of that. There is, of course, what we saw in Charlottesville was very definitely an expression of that. And you also see this pushback coming. You have the young woman who scaled the flagpole and brought down the, the Confederate front flag. Was it in Durham, Carolina? I can't remember. You know, it's all happening at the same time. But I would not term the pushback as persecutory. The, the persecutory aspect, I mean, neo-Nazis, I don't think you could describe that as anything but persecutory. And the symbolism, the Klan symbolism that they're using... The physical intimidation of women at times in social spaces is still something that goes on. Well, you know, some of this, again, it, it goes off into things that are just straight-out state repression, the ways that ICE is starting to deploy police departments in order to take people off the street, off their job, and just haul them off. They go to report a rape against themselves. They can be arrested and deported. That's that kind of gray line where you're going from it's not just persecution it's it's oppression another example also because uh first the response to black lives matter there was that all lives matter retort when it was being pushed back it was abusive 
it's kind of abusive speech. It might not go further than that, but in some cases there was a threat of violence behind it. And then from there, we have a demonization of Black Lives Matter. And I've seen this in various press reports where people, it's just like, you know, the white people, to them, it's like the old word, world, the old word, black militants. They were, they were terrified of black militants. They were angry at black militants. And they also wanted to crush black militants. And that, so there's this attitude also from Tea Party types or whatever the uh, alt white supremacist world calls themselves now that they use this as a term of abuse. So I think a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now, certainly there are actual acts of violence being carried out. Mosque burning that happened recently, and that was an example also of people stepping up because the community said, come on, we're going to give you money to help rebuild this. There are some encouraging signs there as well. That demonization is something that's very scary because it's very dangerous. A lot of our role is going to be somehow to educate people around how this works and what the roots of it are. We are going to be taking a music break in just a moment. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Darlene Pagano, and after the music break, we'll examine some possible solutions for the problems that have been outlined with our guest, Max Dashu. We will be hearing Ulali, the Native American Women's Drumming and Song Group. Yeah. 
That was Eulali, the women's drumming group playing Mother, a tribute to all indigenous women. Max, I've been involved in some amazing conversations lately, trying to understand some of the bitterness uh, of current public and political discourse. And the aggression, the venom, the anger, attacks, and the stalemate of it all. Some of the most interesting uh, and encouraging lines lines of this discussion have to do with uh, trying to understand the externalization of our feelings, making outside forces responsible for our responses. The most common example uh, being, we all know this one, you made me feel so angry. You made me do that. We humans, I think, completely externalize the causes of our own responses. Uh, We don't cop to the fact that our own thoughts were processed by our own minds and go through our own emotions and that our actions are completely the decisions of our own minds. This is so commonly heard, particularly by women. It's put on to women that... It's practically the air we breathe and the ground we walk upon. Women seem to be um, responsible for the feelings and the actions of men uh, around the world. Um, Any shameful feeling men have, and shame would be, um, you know, particular to their culture, what is shameful. But if men feel any shameful feelings uh, by their thoughts and deeds... They blame it on women. You know, she made me feel that way. Um, It's not that I am a lustful person. She did it. Um, And women seem worldwide again, not trying to put it on any one culture. Women have to help men and are responsible to men uh, for men helping men be able to maintain the mores of their own culture. Um, If a woman is desired, and that's a bad thing in your culture, well, it's because the woman makes herself desirable. It's not that the person looking upon her or even thinking about her um, uh, has feelings of desire and therefore feelings of being wrong or or shamed. Um, Before I go any further with that, does that seem a valid way of trying to understand some of the angry behavior out there? And I was only using the example of women. There are certainly many more, but particularly um, how this is put upon women. Uh, Or am I going too far down some psychological uh, rabbit hole or does any of this conversation I'm in fit with any of your research way? Yeah. Well, that's the logic of, of a patriarchal system. Men cannot be held responsible for their acts, for their aggression. It has to be the woman's fault. You know, and this is like, you know, the temptation of Eve, all this stuff, original sin in the Christian societies, but it's also present in Muslim societies, the idea that male sexual response is laid at the door of women because how we dress, how we move, we're not supposed to be in certain social spaces because to be there, to be in a tavern, to be in whatever place, a street at night, means that we somehow invited attack. You know, so women 
women's right to public space is always negotiable in this patriarchal logic. That's part of it. The There's also really, I mean, what, what happened with Me Too is the pervasiveness of sexual assault, of aggression, of incest rape. You know, all of this is something that exists. You know, it's a continuum. Right now we're looking at the way that women's not just their economic survival, you know, their ability to hold a job, but their ability actually to ascend through a profession in, you know, the university or whatever setting, or even simply to, you know, I mean, because those are those are the more elite instances, but it's actually the women of the working classes who get the most direct sexual aggression, you know, overall. I mean, thinking of the campesinas, you know, out there in the grape fields, you know, and it's it's really survival it's having a roof over your head it's having food to eat for you and your children and so you the stakes for the woman are huge and also the social pressures because there is this tendency culturally to blame her for what he did you know so uh there's a way in which women can be put into a category, and I'm going to go back again for a moment to medieval Europe on this, and there are examples in in India and other places as well but In Spanish law, they called a woman who had more than one sexual relationship with a man was legally defined as la mala mujer, the bad woman, the evil woman. She was automatically considered to be a prostitute. And as such, any man could attack her physically and she had no legal recourse. He could even kill her. You know, so this was a form of of both masculine aggression venting a, a legal target as the Jews were as other groups were but this this just getting away from the the specific example of Spain this is something that was true in European societies overall that it was her fault that you know it had to be something in her behavior uh the way that she dressed the way that she moved and even her very presence in a particular place was enough to let him completely off the hook and so that has persisted in our society. That was never lifted away. And I think that people, if you look back uh, a couple hundred years in time here in the United States, you can see how much more explicit that code was. You know, I mean, we've gone through a lot of social changes now where women were able to breach their way into the universities, into the, into the professions and the jobs and so forth, the more desirable jobs. But we haven't caught up in terms of the sexual mores or the attitudes that are really based on male supremacy, you know. And uh, I, see, I think we see it in the courts very strongly. I mean, if a woman, you know, the, the fact that a woman could be interrogated as to whether she was drinking or not in a, in a rape case, her drinking should not be relevant. Does anybody ask the rapist if he was drinking? You know, it's just like that's part of a structure that's an unconscious set of assumptions that people take for granted and they don't even realize they're there. You know, and and you have other women, not just men, but other women judging and criticizing and even attacking a woman who is targeted in that way. Which is what, I mean, with Me Too, it's it's so amazing uh, it's such an important speak out moment because i think that there was kind of this liberal understanding that it was all so much better now that women had advanced and look you know women are in all these positions that they didn't used to hold even though really 
uh, tenured professor, professors are still predominantly men. I mean, there's still all these things happening. But what we're beginning to see now is, you know, the archaeologists going on a field excavation and then all these stories start pouring out about being, you know, assaulted and, and strong-armed and uh, sexual innuendos and the whole, the whole nine yards. So this is supposedly a scientific undertaking, but as soon as there is a way that this woman can be made vulnerable as the sole woman in a male group, then that is happening. It's happening university professors to students. It's happening in, in all these contexts. And so that that speak out is really important because uh, some of it too is an extension of old assumptions that are racialized. Not just the misogyny is there, but the racialized part is integrally in it for Native women and for black women. You know, the colossal rates of sexual assault and femicide that are committed against them. And, you know, it relates also to on the job, you know, that uh, they're vulnerable to an even greater degree. I want to point out that the work that Max has been doing for, let me say, 45 years, Max? Is 40, 48 years this month. 48 years is the Suppressed Histories Archive. The woman knows of what she's speaks the visual record of everything that she's talking about tonight she has been devoted to that collection and that understanding and that weaving of the story in all of that time thanks so much max for being here and just letting me pick at you and uh, pick your brain and ask you to just give us gobs of uh, the research and critique that you've been doing for these years. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where are we? We're going to move a little bit away now from Max and talk about ourselves. Um, tonight, you're going to get to hear two um, apprentices from the very newest group, Sharon and Steve, uh, because the uh, apprentice program is about to open up for the next group to come in. You'll be group 44 if you come on in. And we're going to let the, uh, the newest apprentices themselves take the show. Go ahead. Hi, Darlene. A little nervous here. We were just told we were going to be on the air. So um, Here we are. <laughs> and that's Steve. Um, so... The first voice apprenticeship program is unique um, because you learn every aspect of radio broadcasting and you learn also how to build community, how to work in a diverse setting with, uh, with people who have uh, great values. Um, whether you agree with every little point or not, the shared values are deep. Um, uh, I uh, started out because I, I uh, well, I tried to sign up. I was really kind of uh, surprised when I was accepted. But when Trump was elected, I knew I needed to do a different kind of activism. And um, I needed to, as you can hear, improve my communication skills. Uh, very much so. And uh, so I... Uh, I did the went through the process and it is a real process 
And uh, here I am. And you do learn very quickly. It's astounding. You know, I had no media experience at all. And it's astounding what I've learned to do in just these several months. Yeah, and I, I guess I have to echo exactly what Sharon just said. Um, I'm uh, This is new for me as well. It's a new experience. Uh, but I've always sort of loved radio, always loved uh, sound, uh, music, definitely. And the opportunity when I first heard about the First Voice Apprenticeship Program was to just apply, uh, get going, get moving, and see what happens with it, you know, and kind of put the peanut butter in my chocolate and the chocolate in my peanut butter and try to see how it all gets mixed up together and move forward with this uh, first voice apprenticeship program. So we're definitely reaching out. We'd like you all to reach out back to us and apply. We need you. We want you. We want to uh, have that community experience, as Sharon said earlier, with you. And we want to uh, continue this effort of building that community, building the effort and sort of moving in uh, 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 as one. And seeing what we can do to uh, speak truth, our truth, our own personal truth, uh, our community truth uh, for everyone and to move things forward. Uh, to that end, I'd like to just speak real quickly about one of our uh, longtime First Voice Apprenticeship uh, Program members uh, who passed away this week, uh, Mr. Lewis Sawyer. Uh, he passed away. Uh, he was a longtime receptionist for KPFA. Uh, definitely a fierce uh, prison rights activist and anti-prison industrial complex activist and also an extreme music lover. So much so uh, that he named his own son Jazz. Fas fascinating, fascinating. And he also had a show called the Lewis Sawyer Experience. Amazing. He's also known around here as the well, I'm sorry, he was known around here as the oldest living apprentice. Wow. Wow. So now to uh, get back to the new apprentices to move into the future. Uh, applications are due by 5 p.m. on Friday. Um, and you can apply either uh, by downloading an app application at KPFA Apprentice, all one word. Dot org, or call uh, the, our, our uh, First Voice office at 510-848-6767, extension 235. Let me just say a few things that um, uh, are wonderful about the program. Not only are we um, learning, but from the very... Uh, day that we start the the program, we are contributing, and some of us are on the air. And the ways that we do that, um, all the community calendars that you always listen to and always um, scramble for a pencil for when you hear us, um, those ca community calendars are done by the apprenticeship program, and that's where the newest apprentices start. The same for the KPFA uh, PSAs, the one-minute uh, specials for special announcements for benefits that we bring to you many times a day. As the a program moves on and you gain more skills in writing and producing and editing and on and on, you then get on and are responsible for this program, Full Circle. Full Circle for many years has been the sole responsibility uh, 
of the apprenticeship program, and it is part of what KPFA uh, as the and the Pacifica uh, organization contributes to the apprenticeship program. Um, the um, the website, let me uh, tell you to go to, is kpfaapprentice.org. That's one word, kpfaapprentice.org. We look forward to your interest in the program. Uh, you are listening to Full Circle here on K- 94.1 KPFA, and we have links to what has been covered here tonight and the music you have heard all on our Full Circle website. That's kpfaapprentice.org. Anything that you'd like to follow up with Max Dashu, uh, her announcements, her classes, the very work that she does will be available uh, on that website after the uh, on on the website for this particular show. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle for a retrospective on the past year's multiple Muslim bans by the president, as well as his pronouncement on the status of Jerusalem. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host this evening, Darlene Pagano. And thanks to David on the board and the tech assistants who are the people you just heard from our newest apprenticeship group, uh, Sharon and Steve. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned for La Onda Bejita up next. Thank you.